Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Stand with me. We're going to turn to the, the last portion of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a song that goes along with these words. And, uh, and uh, I hope you're teaching your children that song. The wise man built his house upon it, right? And the rain came down and the winds came up. And it's been a long time. So we won't sing the song. We'll read the passage, all right? This is the word of Jesus, the conclusion to this great sermon. The final words of Christ there on the mountainside. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall thereof. Great was its fall. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us as we look at your word together this morning. I thank you for the faces that I see this morning. I thank you for the months that you gave us, that you kept us connected and loving each other and excited to worship you. And now, Father, you are here. We are in your midst. We praise you, Father, and we ask that you'll speak through your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're at the conclusion of this great sermon. Imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be there when it was preached. Imagine what it was like to sit on that mountain that day. We're not told a great deal about it. We are told at the conclusion, which we're going to look at next week, when it's not actually part of the sermon, but as the sermon ends, that when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he is teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So they had gone, many of them, uh, a long journey to hear Jesus up onto the mountain. Uh, a walk of hours, and for some, no doubt, days. They get on the mountain and they hear Jesus preach, and at the end... They don't go away saying, huh, was that all? But they go away amazed. They go away saying, that was something I will never forget. They were astounded at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. What is clear in the response of the crowd to this sermon, and what we lack as we read this sermon today, is the, the immediacy of the power of God there on that mountaintop. That as they stood there or sat there or however they listened to Jesus there on that mountaintop, they sensed that they were in the presence of something unprecedented in their lives. That there was an authority there that was beyond anything they had tasted before and that they were astounded by it. That they were, they were struck by it. It was like a wind. It was like a, a, a gale. It was like standing in the English Channel on the cliffs of Dover as the wind hits you. You get such a striking blow to your face that that you think, how is this possible? How can I stand in the face of it? No doubt morally and spiritually, that's the feeling of these people as they're listening to Jesus preach it. Now that we have a perspective on these words that they lack, 
this perspective of time, the perspective of knowing the story that follows. They lack that perspective. And so in some ways, they're, they're bound to have confusion as they listen to Jesus. But what they have that we don't is immediacy, or at least which we don't sense often, is the immediacy of God. And that brought conviction. These words penetrated the people. They were in the presence of one with authority, one who taught the word of God with the authority of God, and they were convicted. They listened to this and they went, oh. The words of Jesus penetrated, and I hope that we don't go away just with a, a wise timely perspective on what Jesus taught in this sermon, but that we also leave with the conviction that they had that was brought on by, their, by the immediacy of Christ. And why do I say that and why is this possible? Because the word of God is God. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Because the word of God is in our midst. He's promised to be with us wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And so in every way, what is here in the passage is here in, the, in our presence. Jesus is here. Jesus has promised to be with us. And as we listen to his words, we not only have perspective, we have the power. We have the immediacy. The sermon ends with a challenge, a final challenge, which summarizes the entire sermon. Build on the rock. Build on what he has said, on his word. He concludes just as he began the sermon by explaining the entrance requirements of his kingdom, the distinguishing marks of those that he will one day acknowledge as his own. When they stand before him in glory saying, Lord, Lord, he will say to some, I knew you. And now he's saying at the end, now I want you to know, because he's just spoken of those who will say, I never knew you. He's telling them who it is that will be said to, to whom he will say, I know you. When they say, Lord, Lord, he'll say, come Take a place at my right hand. <laughs> he ends with this final challenge. We know from scripture and we hear from Jesus that the requirement of God for those who will enter the kingdom of heaven is faith. In our next chapter, when we go on into chapter 8, first thing we're going to see, second thing actually, after a leper coming down is a centurion coming to Jesus, a Gentile. And asking him to heal his servant. Jesus marvels at his faith. It's clear throughout the life of Jesus. That Christ is looking for faith. Oh ye of little faith. Oh the marvelous faith he says of this Gentile. He's looking for faith. Faith is the requirement of God. Of those who will enter his presence. Paul writes by grace you are saved. Through faith. And that that is the faith. Not of yourselves. It comes as a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so the demand of God for his children, from his children, what he expects, what he wants for them, what he expects from them is faith. But what is faith? And how are we to comprehend and understand it? In these verses that are before us this, this morning and in this entire sermon, we have the definition of faith that Jesus gives. Jesus tells us here what it requires, what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. These are not words that are meant to discourage. They're not intended to cause dismay. They are not a hopeless challenge requiring something of you that you can never do and never give. It is honestly a great challenge. The road is narrow. Jesus has said that. The gate is constrained. The path is difficult 
It is lonely because many are choosing the broad way and fewer are taking the narrow way. Yet Jesus is not pointing out how narrow the way is and how difficult it is and how few walk it in order to cause us to despair and say, I'm not going to try then. Jesus is not working despair. This is no what we call Jeremiah, named after the prophet Jeremiah. No warning of inevitable doom, no counsel of hopelessness. Jesus is calling us to do, to act, to walk, to build for eternity. He's calling us to do. This is Jesus' definition of faith. He's telling us here how we live by faith. So we end our time in this sermon by summarizing the picture of faith provided by Jesus here. And we must grasp three truths from Jesus' final challenge found in these verses. Those truths which which tell us what faith is, what it looks like, are these. Hearing alone is not faith. Hearing alone is not faith. Doing alone is not faith. Hearing alone is not faith. Doing alone is not faith. Resting on Christ as we build and do his will is faith. Hearing is not faith, and I'm going to use it without the alone because I want it to have more punch. Hearing is not faith, doing is not faith, resting on Christ, that's faith. I want to begin by talking about hearing and why it's not faith. Remember, there's a crowd of thousands that are listening to this sermon. They're religious, at least conventionally religious. Only 12 of the thousands are his disciples. The vast majority are not disciples. And will never become such. We have to acknowledge this. We must recognize that the vast majority of this crowd that commends Jesus, that says, whoa, what power, never actually worship him as Lord. We're simply admitting what scripture tells us when we say this. It tells us this about Christ. It tells us about those who followed him. It tells us about the early church and the numbers in it. And from those numbers and what it tells us about those who followed Jesus we know that there were 12 disciples at the end in the upper room with Jesus. We know that when Jesus went to his death, there were a few disciples that were with him at the cross, not even all the 12. We know that when Jesus rose from the dead, that the disciples were scattered and came back together, and that when he ascended into heaven, that in the upper room at that point, after 40 days of his proving that he descended from the grave, that he, was, that he had risen from the dead and was going to go into heaven, there were 120 people in that upper room right after his ascension. Only 120. Now, in the early days of the church, the first weeks, months, there was a great ingathering of people. On the day of Pentecost, we're told that thousands on one day entered. And we know that the church continued to grow in the early days. It was powerful, and it was adding numbers day by day, we're told. But by 30 years on, from Christ's ascension in the early days of the church, the day of Pentecost, 30-some years on, Paul is writing the, the book of Romans. He's writing to the Romans... And at the end of his book, the Epistle to the Romans, he writes to the, the, the Romans and he says, look, Israel was a tree and it's been broken and you've been grafted in. He says, but don't be proud that you've been grafted into the tree of Israel. The day will come when God will restore Israel. And so by 30 years on, it was clear that the Jews had not followed Jesus. What few Jews did had become Christians and were no longer counted Jews. But the growth of the church was outside these crowds that are largely Jewish. Not solely Jewish, not only Jews, but largely Jewish. We know there were Gentiles as well, but it was largely a Jewish community. 
So in the view of Apostle Paul 30 years on from here, the Jews have rejected Jesus. It's a simple matter then of math to understand that many of the thousands that the Bible tells us were intrigued by the message of Jesus, many of these thousands who traveled great distances over great periods of time to listen to and follow Jesus, did not ultimately enter the kingdom of Christ. So there were many hearers, many, and they valued his words, reveling in the authority of his message, marveling at his teaching. But they were not willing to go further than what was for them essentially an intellectual appreciation, a relishing of religious concepts in their minds. Their religion was entirely in their minds. We have a word for this. It's platonic. It's after the teaching of Plato who said that forms are the essential thing and forms exist in the mind and the flesh is dirty and the flesh is not a place where we can live an exalted life but we live in the mind and so we have platonic love. We have Plato's teaching on the platonic ideal that the ideal is the big thing and that exists in the mind not outside of the mind. These people are Platonists. Now, they didn't know perhaps the name of Plato, and nor do you. But you know this form of thought, which is if I think a thing, I've apprehended it, and therefore by apprehending it, I've actually taken it in and it's become me. This teaching and the teaching of the Old Testament to most Jews was, was something they approached platonically, an elevating ideal not one that they felt you could fully incarnate. And they looked at the people who tried to fully incarnate it, the Pharisees, and they said, weirdos, terrible. Enacting it lessened it. Mixing it with the flesh made it dirty. It was better to keep it pure in the mind. Jewish religion, as all religion, over all the ages, except for those few moments when God is truly worshipped, existed for the most primarily in the mind. It was an ideal, it was not reality. They agreed with the law. They read the law. They built tombs for the prophets who preached the law. But then they left the doors of their church, they stopped building the tombs, and they went out and they took advantage of the poor and the widow. And they cheated in their things, and they, they lied on their taxes, and they did what, what a man's got to do, you know? That's what I got to do as a man. In the church, they lived by it. They espoused it. They said yes, yes about it. Outside the church, they put it aside, an impossible ideal. We must be very clear on this point. It was not Jesus preaching of an impossible ideal that caused the crowds to thin out. It was his demand that those ideals leave the realm of their minds and be enacted. Those reformed preachers who say, Jesus is calling us to do something we can never do, and therefore, the glory of this sermon is it's impossible, but in Jesus, we get forgiven anyway. And so it causes us to turn to Jesus. Just don't read the sermon. They turn black into white and white into black. Jesus is calling for people to do what he said. Not just to intellectually appreciate it and feel despair over their failures to accomplish it. It was his expectation that they do as their minds understood him to be calling them to do in his teaching that caused them to turn from him. It was the practical nature of his challenge, the flesh and blood expectation he placed on them that ultimately offended them so much that they left him. They did not want a religion that intruded too much on their daily living. 
Their religion was fine for the Sabbath. They observed the rituals of the ritual days, the ritual Sabbaths, all these. But they did not seek to live by it once they left the halls of their synagogue. Actually, living it was fanaticism. Impossible. Religion died, they thought, if you tried to live it out. It became hypocrisy. Better to have it as a living ideal in the mind than dead in actual practice. They actually didn't want this teaching to escape the pristine towers of their minds. Didn't want it to infect their everyday lives, their actions, and cause them to to carry this disease into the world of religious obedience. No, keep it in the mind. They were like modern congressmen. The, the congressmen we have today were exactly the same as the people back day. Modern congressmen who speak on and on about how much they value their religious upbringing, how much they gained from and learned through their religious upbringing, how they appreciate their religion, how they respect their religion, and then they go out and they vote against their religion. It's an intellectual fantasy to them. It's, it's a pristine ivory tower of religious thought that doesn't hit their lives. And in this, <clears throat> the men of this day, no different than the men of our day, and the congressmen aren't all that different than you and me. Hearing is not faith. And when we speak of hearing, we speak of hearing with approval. The crowd hears, understands, approves, and yet it was not faith. The crowds heard, they liked, they agreed with what they heard, but ultimately only a few follow, only a few find the narrow way of obedience. It is a narrow way, and it excludes many of those. Jesus says to them, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to you, I didn't know you. This is the day that we live in, a day that has confused listening, liking, agreeing with the true faith that God requires of us with actually being that true faith. Listening and agreeing today are faith. If you listen, if you agree, you have faith. That's the definition of faith today. So all around us, people are building great castles, great ivory towers of faith. Books and teachings, schools and publishing houses, television shows, podcasts, and conference after conference after conference after conference, all dedicated to teaching and preaching truth. Some of them are not sound. Many of them are sound. And yet, regardless of this great victory march of teaching, the church declines and its influence wanes, and our nation descends further and further. Churches seem to be going from triumphant teaching to triumph of teaching, and the nation goes down. And we who are called to be salt and light, we who are called to be the, the city that's built upon a hill that the world will stream to, have lost our light and salt, and we are not a city that is glorious in the eyes of anyone. And the world is going on saying, oh yeah? <laughs> and we're saying we have faith. And this is because we have substituted hearing and agreeing with faith. We have made faith to consist entirely of hearing and agreeing. Now we must hear, 
But hearing alone is not faith. Remember I gave those words, hearing alone, doing alone at the beginning. Don't forget that I said alone. We must hear. Hearing and agreeing are important, but they are not what Jesus requires. They are not the sum total of what Jesus expects. And this, in this area, the crowd agrees with him. They marvel at his teaching. They're amazed. They recognize his teaching as superior in every way to the teaching of their religious authorities. They're standing there going, give it to him, Jesus, give it to him. This is why he says to them at the end, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He knows that they're listening. He knows they're approving. He knows as well that acting is required and that they will not act. Right before our eyes, we are seeing, in one sense, the fall of the American church. It has great resources. It has great teaching. It has great wealth. But it's fallen. And great is its fall. The inevitable winds and storms are descending. And we have pastors, some that I knew personally at this point, who are committing suicide in their 50s, taking their lives. We have musicians who are saying, you know, I never really believed that, and are leaving behind their Christian faith publicly. We have sexual scandal after sexual scandal in the church by leaders. It's a day of apostasy, which means leaving God behind. A day of disobedience, and it's gripped our church. But... Doing alone can never define faith any more than knowing alone, hearing alone. It's not sufficient to say that faith is acting. Faith, of course, must act, but acting alone is not faith. I need to point out something that's obvious here but not explicitly stated, and that is if you look at what Jesus says, if you listen to his words, you understand that in this kind of parable, everyone is building something. Everyone builds something. Everyone's doing something. Doing is no more faith alone when it's alone than hearing is when it's alone. Everyone's doing. Everyone's building a house. Some of those houses are going to stand in the storm. Most won't. It's absolutely clear in this sermon that Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, are exceptional doers. They do so much, and I'm not talking about the natural pursuits of the human race, like going to school, changing the oil in their cars, getting jobs, being married, having children, mowing the lawn, nursing the children, changing diapers. They do these things. Their wives do these things. They also do much that is specifically oriented towards their religious commitments. They pray in public before men with many words. They give to the poor ostentatiously with grand generosity so that everyone can see it. They fast boldly and publicly with great displays of humility. These guys are great doers of religious works. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is constantly challenged by his foes for not doing as they did. He and his disciples do not follow the traditions of the elders by washing their hands many times a day like the Pharisees do. They don't fast. The Pharisees say, why don't you fast? You should fast. And Jesus says, well, no. The bridegroom's with them. I'm not going to be fasting. They don't observe the Sabbath as the Pharisees would like. The Pharisees are busy beavers filled with religious deeds. And yet it doesn't please God. They are building on sand. When the winds come and the storm descends, their houses will fall. 
What are these winds and waves that buffet the houses of those who build? Notice that the same stresses meet both forms of building, the ones that are built on rock and those on sand, both face the same winds. Are these waves, these storms, the normal, simple buffetings of life, loss, hardship, car breaking down, money not coming in, difficult marriages? It may be that Jesus is speaking here of the trials of the day of his return, a day of testing and trial, when the motives of all hearts will be exposed and all mankind will stand in his presence, in the presence of Christ and the Father. But I think, honestly, that Jesus is speaking about more than just the everyday trials of life, and he's speaking of a time that's sooner than the, the day of judgment. That Jesus is speaking here about this life. Not only of eternal judgment, and not only of things that happen to everyone, that everyone can get through, because it seems like the people who build their houses on the sand and on the rocks get through the same difficulties in life about the same. But what Jesus is speaking here is about the trials that come, the temptations which seek to drive us, which Satan uses to drive us into sin. He's speaking, these winds and these waves, while they can include everything else, the, the normal tr difficulties of life and the, the presence of God in the judgment, he's speaking here specifically of the sifting of our souls by Satan. Remember that he said to Peter, 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 Satan has asked to sift your soul. He wants to put you in his mortar and pestle. He wants to grind you, grind you, grind you. He wants to take you. And he wants to do with you until you sin so badly that you can't find a way back to me. But I have stood for you, Jesus says. These storms are the day when God allows your faith to be tried. To find out if it's real. They're the day of the refining of your faith by God. Those who don't build on the rock but on sand look like they're building a great house. It's a grand edifice until the day of trial. Until the day of deep temptation, it seems fine. But in that day, they fall. In that day, they lack a foundation. Now, I want to say that as the warning against hearing and not doing applies to the American church in general, those who hear and do not act, the second warning here, that there's coming a day and we must be found building in that day, is a warning to you and to me. And in particular to our church. We are not in the mainstream. We are not those who are claiming a cheap grace. A grace that allows us to live up in heaven mentally. Even as we live in rebellion and sin down below. We're doers. Not all of us. Not all the time. But more often than not. This is our character. And thus our temptation. To think that doing is faith. And we need to hear Jesus warn that it's not building alone. That's faith. Because everyone's building. Everyone's doing. It is not doing that brings us to heaven. Remember, we're talking about the church here. This is equally true outside the church. But outside the church, those who build aren't, aren't claiming to be building on the teaching of Jesus. Those inside the church, these are the ones Jesus is addressing. And inside the church is where his warning that some are building on sand while others are building on rock needs to be heard. You can't get to heaven by busyness in religious deeds. You don't get to heaven because you're a nice person doing good things. You don't get to heaven by fighting sin, much as it's important for you to do all these things. 
You cannot. It's not faith to work. It's not faith to do, to build, any more than it's faith to listen. I want to point out to you something that most of you already know. I grew up in the center of the American evangelical world, the Reformed world. I grew up in the, the, the beginning days of that religious movement that took over America and now seems to have spread across the world, known as evangelicalism. And it was a great movement to grow up in the midst of. Its leaders were great men and women, and I loved being around them. It had immense, powerful, and it was wonderful. I marvel to, today still at the leaders that I grew up around and, and their character. Great men and women of faith. Elizabeth Elliot, that great woman of faith. Great woman. C. Everett Coop, Chip Coop. Great doctor, great man of God. Great, great. Paul Little. Some of these names you won't know. Ken Taylor, Billy Graham, my father and mother. I was a child of that great movement of God. And because I was a child of it, I've seen its decline. And in my own family, I've seen how both sides of this false view of faith have become accepted. That listening and hearing is faith. That doing is faith. I've seen the ones who have an easy faith that is in their mind and requires little of them to sacrifice Little in obedience, the life of mental ascent, the life of American niceness and prosperity passing for the life of those who are redeemed by God. And I have seen as well the life of religious good deeds, serving the poor, living in the city for the city, doing our best for the needy. I've seen that also, these religious good deeds become a substitute for what Jesus demands. I've seen it. And the second group, these people, you will sacrifice. This is the danger we face more than the first, I think. These people will do a great deal. But this life tends to give itself a pass when it comes to temptation. And thus is not able to resist the winds and storms Jesus speaks of here. It will sacrifice, it will do so in many ways, just like the Pharisees. But it's self-righteous and proud. It thinks itself good. And it is not the faith that Jesus preaches or God requires. Branches of my own family and, and myself at times have fallen into this trap. I do good. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. Everyone is doing. The life that perseveres in the storm, what is it? What is the faith that withstands the harshest winds and the greatest waves? What is faith as Jesus teaches it? It's obvious, isn't it, that faith is building your life on one particular foundation. It's not how you build. It's not the plans you go by. It's where you build. Jesus doesn't describe what the, the, the look of the thing that's built here. He doesn't tell you what is built. He doesn't say what it looks like, how big it is, how grand, or how menial. He describes where it's built. The life of faith stands not on its own, but it stands only because it rests on Jesus. This is vital, and I want to make one implication of this clear before closing. And that implication is this. The life of faith builds on Jesus. Does it look different from the life that is not of faith? No. The person building on sand, the life built on hearing alone or doing alone will construct something and it may be a very grand edifice, even a tower of Babel <laughs> rising to the heavens. 
It may appear a grander edifice than the life that is built on the solid rock. This is a necessary deduction from the parable. Both build, both construct, both raise up. The difference only becomes apparent in the storm. Only in the face of temptation does one life, one building, stand apart from the other. Temptation storms hit both lives. Not just one, both get buffeted. Both receive the storms. The wind and waves are, are, are battering both. The life of faith gets struck. Satan attacks. Satan seeks to draw you to follow him. The house suffers. Your building is tested. You fall. You find yourself blown in, a window broken, a, a storm door bashed into the side of the house. You find yourself damaged by what Satan does because you give in to sin. The difference is that in the house on the rock, you get back to work and start building again. And it's not blown apart to smithereens. The building is tested, yet it stands. It's not impervious to the storms. God hasn't promised that no storm, no wave will ever strike it. Both get struck, but the one falls and the other survives, and the builder keeps on building. The true child of God fails often, this is the meaning of the storm. It's failure, it's testing, Satan asking God if he can sift Peter. And Peter does get sifted. He fails, he sinks in the water. He tells Jesus, you can't go to your death. And Jesus says to him, get thee away from me, Satan. He attacks the high priest's servant in the garden. He denies Jesus three times, despite being warned and claiming that he never would. He stops eating with the Gentiles after Christ has gone into heaven and must be confronted by Paul. And yet, this fallible man is a picture, a paragon of faith because he was the rock on which Christ built his church. He is a giant. Not that he never sins. No, he sins and you will too. You will fail. You will deny Jesus. But he is a paragon and a rock in that he comes back to Jesus again and again. And starts building again, repenting each time and returning. Faith is not your perfection. It's not your believing perfectly or doing perfectly. Faith is the perfection of Jesus Christ undergirding you. You standing on it. You living on it. You resting on it. And this is why... I want to close by saying we don't understand the Sabbath. God requires in the Old Testament a tenth, a tithe of everything, all the money, all the goods. But when it comes to our time, it's about 14%. He says, one day out of seven, you're to give to me. And what are you to do on that day? You're to rest. You don't have to do anything. You let everything go, and you're to rest in God, in God. That is a principle about faith. Faith ultimately says, it's not me. It is God underneath me. I trust God. I am resting on God. My day is God. My life is God. I give a day to God to show that every day, all of my life rests on God, on Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Are you resting on him? Have you said to him, I hear you and I will obey you? He's asking you to do this. He's calling you to do this now. Place your hope in him. I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards, even with a mask on, about this if you would like to know how to follow Jesus and to build your house on the rock. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that we can be together this morning and that we can hear your word and that we can appreciate the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will speak to us this week about how we're falling short in hearing and in doing, and most of all, in rusting on Jesus, in trusting in Jesus. May we build on the solid rock, and may every life in here say, Lord, Lord, and may the Lord turn to that life and say, I know you, I love you, on the day of judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.